mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? I'm feeling like I'm home and dry. <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean? Well... <laughs> are you inside and it's like not raining? Well, A, it's one of my favourite songs ever in the history of time, which I have mm-hmm. mentioned a number of times on Talk Art. Who sings it? By the Pet Shop Boys. B, the video for that song was directed by our guest today. Ah. why it was on my mind it's one of the many things that came to my mind when i was thinking about today's guest and then c obviously we're in lockdown so i've been home and i'm very dry so uh, it's <laughs> you are, it, you are very very dry yes <laughs> you wouldn't you're not someone i would describe as wet definitely dry <laughs> so today's guest is someone that i came across his work pretty much when I first started ever going to galleries, which was Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. And I -hmm. was going out with a wonderful man called Dan and his best friend was called Max Moogler. And Max was an assistant at Maureen Paley Gallery in East London. And we used to hang out just as friends, totally outside of the art world. And then eventually he started inviting us to private views. And it was my first kind of understanding of what the art world could be and was. And it was this kind of very magical time in my life because mm-hmm. the more I would go to Maureen's openings, the more I would want to be part of this incredible sort of world. It was like mm-hmm. something this so This is Maureen Paley anything. Gallery. Do you just mention that? Yes, Maureen Paley Gallery in East London, Uh yeah. Uh So Max introduced me to the work of Wolfgang. And then I was also, because I was in my band at the time, I was doing a lot of gigs in nightclubs. And I remember when Max gave me a book called Truth Study Centre in the Mm mid-2000s. And I went to um, Simon Hobart's nightclub, um, Ghetto, and Wolfgang was there. And I remember running up to him and just being a total fanboy and being like, I love your new book. And it's made me understand that art can also be like, you know, not even just on the wall, it can be in the context of a book and there was a particular photograph called we summer 2004 mm, which has all these London amazing fields, wasn't it yeah exactly and it has these amazing kind of soap bubbles floating in the air with a kind of group of picnickers and and that picture to me just the idea of like gravity and light and space mm-hmm. and i don't know and also just portraits of the everyday but they had it had so much kind of depth that yeah he became this kind of this important figure for me in, in, in a way. So yeah, I'm just thrilled. He was also one of the first people we wanted to have on the show. So yes, I feel like time. we are home and dry because we've achieved yes. what we aim to do, which was interview mm. our guest. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Wolfgang, Wolfgang Tillman. Let me in. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Wolfgang. How are you, Wolfgang? Where do we find you, Wolfgang? 
that was quite an introduction I loved listening to. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could continue just sitting here and listen. Yeah, listen. Not anyway. <laughs> Time to participate. Where are you, Wolfgang? Um, I'm in Berlin um, um, in my studio in a, in a side room where it's quiet. And uh, yes, um, well, that um, provoked some fond memories in my head, what you, mm-hmm. you mentioned, you referred to. Uh, Do you remember taking that photograph, We Summer, that we talk about? Can you, yes. can you recall your pictures? Yes. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, um, it's wonderful that you attribute it to a place that's close to you because the universality of that scene touched me when I saw it. Um, and that's what I wanted to translate. But the specifics were that it was in Copenhagen. Um, oh. At the end of... Um, the um, LGBT Pride Parade in 2004, um, which somehow then spilled into a public park. And, uh, and um, yeah, that sort of freedom and possibility and, 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 uh, and permissiveness, you know, not that something particularly terrible is, was happening there at all. You know, it was mm. wonderful people having a peaceful time, but... For example, having a drink in the park, you know, this is uh, um, maybe having a smoke. Um, mm. And those things I've always been highly aware of that they are even not allowed in so many places like New York City or um, other countries. Um, right. And so this freedom um, that, um, um, that that is free, also free of charge, that touches me about such gatherings there's no marketing there's no branding there's no um uh, people with um um earphones in their ear and and uh, security um, overload um yeah so wow. who knows if that would be possible in london fields i think it yeah. is still yeah well, you, <laughs> you you've yeah. been described as someone as as a, a kind of documenter of uh, and, and like capturing uh, gay life and, and queer spaces and th- this kind of scene we're describing now at the, the end of summer after like a, a pride event it feels very um typical of, of your work of capturing a moment uh, and like a social study i guess mm-hmm. i mean i i like to i think um i'm uh, more known for a broader scope you know like I, it was important for me to to have um, a broader picture that's not focused on gay life. And uh, for me, it was always important that it's a polysexual world that I portray, um, that there are men and women and and all um, sorts of people. And and, um, because that's really the world that I also want to live in. uh, Mm. um, um, But I guess... In recent years, the word queer has become more and more inclusive. No? And, mm. and so maybe there is something about a sort of queer identity that includes straight people just as much. Um, yes, totally. Um, I, quite like, I quite like that we've claimed the word queer now. I think growing up, that was being a gay man. That was a trigger word for me that really hurt if you got referred to as queer or, or a poof or something like that. I remember feeling really like antagonized by that but now i like the fact that that word we've kind of 
claimed as our own. Mm-hmm. Ah, interesting that that still had had actually this. Uh, stickiness and awkwardness yeah. because uh, because uh, in Germany uh, like in France I guess would uh, you know gay liberation in the 70s claimed uh, the swear word schwul or PD which is pederast uh, um, um, and they are really derogatory and said no but we are proud we are schwul um, um, and ich bin schwul and mm. And um, and of course, the English American word "gay" always had the most beautiful connotations. Right? And, happy, uh, yeah, and happy, and uh, yeah. and so I thought the queer um, that that didn't have that sting. That that was just purely rebellious. Um, and we are um, coming in at a different angle, um, which I guess it is, but. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. And I think in America, it was definitely in the 70s and, and that kind of era, 80s as well. Like, I think the word queer was very much used as a political kind of, you know, way of fighting back as well. But, you know, to sort of say that I think a lot of the art at that time was probably more political in, in, a, in an overt way because it kind of had to be in a sense. But I think in England, I, I mean, I remember getting bullied and people calling me queer, and it was like mm. de- devastating. It felt like a devastating word. It was quite an yeah, aggressive exactly. word somehow. But they and called you Oscar Wilde as well, like didn't that. they? Uh, yeah, everyone called me Oscar Wilde. Yeah, because you were posh. At me. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> he was posh and gay. Yeah, they called oh, him Oscar Wilde. Like <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so Wolfgang Tilmers, for people who don't know your work, you are um, one of the world's, if not the world's, most important uh, contemporary photographers. Um, you were born in 1968 in Germany and you first picked up a camera after going to early gallery visits and seeing the photo work of like Richter and Rauschenberg and Sigma Polka. That's when you kind of got inspired and you picked up a camera when you were like, what, what age was you when you first did that? Um, I mean, it's, it's actually, um, um, first there was the interest in, in art, um, and art that was often using uh, uh, the photographic lens as the sort of image-giving source. Um, mm-hmm. Those painters that you referred to were all um, using these photographic images on canvas, printing mm-hmm. them onto canvas or painting them onto canvas. Yes. And, um, and I um, then around 18, when I was 18, I discovered a black and white uh, laser photocopier when the first digital photocopier and that uh, transformed photos into raster image dots and mm-hmm. and was able to create this very fine beautiful uh, half tone um, pictures which actually last year I showed um, uh, prem- almost premiered some of them after 30 years at Maureen's gallery in my show last June yes um, and and those photocopies, um, they, in their ephemeralness, in their in their um, material sparseness, um, they really electrified me. And and what fascinated me was that this mechanical object carried more charge for me than the, the paintings that I made before, or the drawings that I made before. And um, and um, I then later bought a camera in order to um, have more photographs to photocopy. 
And only oh, after wow. a while I realized that, um, that I'm actually starting to learn to speak the language of photography. And I realized uh, now I don't actually, I prefer not to photocopy these photos anymore. Um, and, um, and, and so it was really a language that I spoke, um, learned to speak uh, from when I was 20. Wow. And but you started off drawing. You always knew you wanted to be an artist and you started off drawing. Uh, strangely, um, I, I've, I've been so lucky, really, like, because on the one hand, I've been, um, um, I was fortunate that I was not spotted as talented in art um, in school or so. I was never sort of, oh, he's the artist. Um, <laughs> right. If anything, I was the scientist. Um, oh, interesting. Um, but then, um, and at the same time, Inside of me, I always acted like an artist. I was always pursuing, testing different media, um, and um, and sort of having confidence and having total lack of confidence. Uh, um, having sort of parents and an environment that fostered me, but at the same time, completely didn't think I was any good at art or music. And uh, mm-hmm. and so this um, allowed me to develop sort of without any outside expectations um, and without sort of pre-guided guidance of what art should be or what art should look like. And that's how I was sort of free to discover for myself a lot of stuff that um, um, people who are, um, you know, discovered at an early age that they can draw at the age of seven or that they can play an instrument at the age of five yeah. They are honed into some expectations, and um, and I really am grateful for that. It's somehow like that I was in a. In you were a, left alone. You were sort of able to I was, work yourself out. Yeah, but also not. I mean, it was also uh, not. Uh, I wasn't kept away from culture. You know, like the environment I grew up in um, meant that. Uh, when going on holidays with the family, one would go into the local church and look at what art is there or look mm-hmm. at uh, so yeah that's quite an interesting way of kind of learning about how to make art and, and, and about how you want to make art because something that I think is a thread throughout the whole of your career is this sense of kind of intimacy and like private moments but also Mm. just these kind of very still everyday you know almost things that you see in the corner of your eye and you might subconsciously pick up Mm. yeah and it's it's this very kind of special world and it it feels it feels like almost like diaristic at sometimes but but other times like you were saying before very universal and so much bigger than than just your story somehow it becomes all of our stories um yeah how how do you feel about those kind of sharing that intimacy um I mean, I um, I um, completely could relate to what you just said um, in the results that you described, you know, like how it becomes accessible. Um, yeah. But in terms of the um, the linearity and one wayness, you described it, um, um, and I know that you meant well, but uh, but uh, it, it's yeah, not. Yeah. Because it's <laughs> not, not always—it's not always a transfer from the everyday to make it look special. It's—it's yeah. a, it's a constant sort of uh, looking afresh at the very extraordinary 
of a total solar eclipse or looking at the very extraordinary of um, an ingot of gold um, yes. or looking at, uh, at a very everyday of a pair of jeans I cast on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of um, re-attributing value with a free sort of... Uh, um, like you, I try to encourage um, to look at things um, without predetermined value. Like this is special. Mm -hmm. Like you can you can choose for yourself um, if this old pair of jeans is carrying charge. Yes. Um, and um, and I think that sort of um, um, openness of direction. Um, I think creates this freedom of looking that that people enjoy possibly when mm. or can connect to when yes. looking forward. Well, you, yeah. th there's a quote that you have, and it's actually on one of your uh, publications, which is if if one thing matters, everything matters, and mm. that is something that's always really resonated with me. The fact that oh yeah, well if that if looking at that matters, then why not looking at this bit of fruit? Why not? Why does that matter more than looking at this corner of a carpet or looking at this like bit of brick wall? And mm. I, and that is that was suddenly like such an eye-opening moment for me with your work is that it, it, everything matters and everything is celebrated. That's, I mean, you got it literally one hundred and one percent. Thank you. But <laughs> but uh, but uh, but it did get me into trouble a little bit that. Uh, that title of my um, exhibition at Tate Britain in 2003 um, because it got misunderstood. Um, I, of course, exactly meant it, like I just said, like you interpreted yeah. it as yeah. potentiality of things. You know, potentially mm. everything can matter. There's no uh, predetermined hierarchy. Uh, hierarchy, like why these yes. molecules, why, do, yes. why should these molecules be inherently less important. It mm. is somehow through a system of values um, or whatever we attribute um, importance or matter to mm -hmm. actually matter. But, um, but of course, it was uh, some understood it as sort of meaning everything is the same. And uh, so he photographs no, right. anything and everything and it just all is the same. And that is, of course, a carelessness that i would never want and right. uh, well that just that just makes everything beige doesn't it that means basically yes. that no, nothing matters is what you're saying then you're not actually <laughs> yes, celebrating yeah, it. you're going like who cares who cares yeah which takes away so from everything yeah, yeah. Um, but i mean what it, what it does is it means that there's no hierarchy in any of your work and you you are known for so many series we talked about like the, the celebrating uh, queer culture and spaces and capturing that but also you talked about the the genes and that's part of a series called the Fultonworth series which is clothing that you kind of stage so that i've always found you project a narrative onto where you imagine what has been or what is about to happen hmm. <laughs> um they feel charged for me sexually yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah, um, they um, yeah they come from from really many different angles, um, and um, and on the one hand they have a very strong origin in sculpture and 
hence the the connection to photography, because I think for me, photography is uh, thinking about three, the three-dimensional world um, on a two-dimensional plane. Right. You know, that's what I what that's what I actually do. You know, if I'm not talking to Russell and Robert or editing pictures or making installations, what I do with my camera is um, thinking actually about something three-dimensional in front of me and how to translate that into two dimensions. Um, and um, so when I saw that uh, gray jeans that I um, post, uh, hung over banister yes. in my college uh, student flat in Bournemouth in 1991 and looked at it the next day, I realized um, this is a sculptural three-dimensional moment yes. um, which would be sort of possible but difficult to um, to save and to keep and to to take that banister off the stairs and <laughs> and put it in install a, it in, in the gallery and install yeah. it and so the economicness of photography struck me and that I can talk about this sculptural moment um, and at the same time of course um, I was attracted to that uh, um, image that was shaped there. Um, um, because also I found there was a, um, a sensuality that's in the yes. surface. Uh, and yes. um, so clothes have always interested me because they are um, really two-dimensional. They cover our, our um, body and then our body Im imprints itself into this uh, fabric and leaves traces and uh, and of course we are so close to our clothes uh, that it's hard to not see also a personality in the, and a personality yeah. in them yes yes i mean was that a eureka moment for you then when you saw the jeans over the banister because that then set off a whole like series of works that you've constantly been cultivating since yeah uh, it was um it was there was um um another one of a red t-shirt which from the same year which um hasn't uh, hasn't didn't have that same impact so the Ad adidas t-shirt um that one is <laughs> happens not to be adidas but um but um that uh, is only in a lesser known book uh, called for when i'm weak i'm strong but uh -huh. um but those, um, um, yeah, you know, when you say serious, I do call them usually with, by the German word for drapery, uh, Faltenwurf. Um, Faltenwurf, yeah. And of course, there, there, is a, there is a seriality, but I never actually work in serious as such that I look for them. So now this month I'm working on this serious. I only really add to them when I have a new genuine experience of that type. Oh, right. Um, so, you know, like I, yeah. I don't sort of go and take a pile of clothes and now I stay. Now you're working on the Fultonworth series. Yeah. yeah. No, not I like think the I, first one of them I saw of yours was Sport Flecken, which oh, yeah. was, I, I was, like Rob's experience was like on a date and saw the work. I was, I was having this mad affair with someone and they bought me your publication, Berg, with the little mm. uh, the, the stuffed mouse climbing out of an envelope. Yes. And there was the image in there, a sport flecken, which is a white T-shirt, and it looks like there's a stain on there, which could be man stain. 
And I remember being completely uh, fixated with this image. And it's a white T-shirt that's screwed up. But it has this, like you said, this sensuality. And as an actor, I, I had the whole background storyline on it. It was like this oh. whole narrative going through it. And that, that is the, my connection into your photography is just the, that, that, the ability to uh, allow your imagination to place yourself within the photographs. Both of you, you, you are getting it uh, because that is why I'm doing what I do. I, I, that's what gives me the most pleasure in what I do is when I, um, when I can evoke in somebody else a sense of I know how that feels. Yes. Or, I, know how, I know how that smells or I know yes. how that touches. You know, and, and so yeah. I don't. Uh, I, it's nostalgia. Um, you're capturing nostalgia, or like uh, projected nostalgia. You know, you're you're yeah. like, or hope uh, to touch it's it again. So hopeful. Or to yeah. Smell it again. Yeah, exactly. It's quite a future thing, exactly. Because I I think I've I've related. There's that amazing picture where you've got the couple, and I think one guy has his hands in the other's like red shorts. Yes. Um, that was in Grabbing the, the other one's the dick, and they, yeah. Yeah, that's yes. the one that I think Russell was referencing about me being on the date because I remember going on a date to it and then I bought the guy I was dating at the time that postcard because it was his favourite image as well. But there was something so sort of powerfully emotive about that image for me and it was the one work that when i left that show even though you had huge you know photographs hanging and of cars mm, that was and all the these one you went away images, with that was the one that i just could not get out of my head it felt like it's and ours though it's, that image as queer yeah. people it was like that image is ours and i feel like a lot of people who go and see the work in galleries who aren't queer would look at that and pass by but again i don't as know a queer though, person, I feel, they don't I feel like there's a sense of intimacy in it that is probably universal with whatever yeah, gender you are yeah 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 no yeah. okay <laughs> I think I, I at least get that reaction from uh, a lot of people, um, from also some girlfriends of, of mine. They can relate to it. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. One recently for Easter said, "Hey, that would be a great Easter card." Um, um, arms <laughs> Looking for eggs. Yeah. <laughs> Looking for eggs. <laughs> <laughs> or the rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also remember seeing your your pictures from nightclubs and like the yes. intense kind of like kissing of, of different people, you know, uh, gay, but also straight couples. But the, this idea of like that intense moment of kissing somebody mm -hmm. and you never get to see it yourself unless you photograph yourself, I guess. But but it's that kind of thing. It really shocked me I mean, the first lost. time I saw one of those pictures because I was like, I'd never thought about that, like that incredible moment of when you first kiss somebody and then it's never actually documented or kept or something. So it's just a I liked the idea of that. There is a, um, there is a, I, I feel a sense of duty um, occasionally in, in nightlife. Uh, um, you know, I don't normally go and say now I photograph, uh, or I don't often photograph in, in clubs in general, yeah. but I do, I do sometimes feel so um, uh, literally involved in what goes on. I feel so empathetic with with uh, with the humanity that plays out here um, mm. that I feel wow, this is so special. This is unique. This is also quite unique in the a length of say ten thousand years of human civilization. Um, mm. When was this possible? This is so special. This is what people fought for 150 years ago and 40 years ago. And, mm -hmm. um, and so I feel, let's, I, I want to quickly 
um, dive into this, take a few pictures uh, um, to literally record it, to witness it, and to um, um, and and so the cost is somehow that I have to in that instant had to flash into these two guys' face uh, faces, um, yeah. um, and but there is a way that when I feel this people pick up that I'm coming from the inside. I'm not an outside observer. And, um, and, um, but yeah, so it, there is an element to photography that, um, um, you sometimes have to get over a certain embarrassment, um, and, um, and jump in there and, and, and wrestle that picture off the mm. night in a way. Yeah? We're well, talking about embarrassment as well. I, I mean, another image that really sticks in my mind is uh, a shot going down and there's a guy sucking a dick. And I've always thought, is that your dick getting sucked? And it looks like, it's like some nightclub scene, but it's like where there's like one of these kind of dark room, back room experiences. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, um, <laughs> No, you don't. Uh, you do. You do. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, no. Realistic. I mean, I, I, I think, like, I, um, I was, uh, um, that was from 1993, and yes, and the the picture. Um, I mean, I was somehow, I was, I was just uh, feeling something fundamental about this that uh, um, this act of uh, you know you know it's not declared but when you think about it the look and the and camera angle it is highly likely that it is the photographer who is involved in this yeah and, yeah <laughs> and, but there was um um and and i chose that was one of the photographs that i then showed in a solo exhibition in paris in 1994 and uh -huh. my mother went there from <gasps> And she visited the gallery especially, and uh, and um, and she like um, yeah was terribly proud of the show, and somehow like I asked her about this, and and she yeah like that is uh, like that is commenting on the sort of decadence of the time. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's a nice <laughs> review. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> was. It looked so, very decadent. It is a very decadent photograph, Wolfgang. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I, 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 do, I do love this idea, though, of like, of, of somehow the, what's special for me about what you do is that it's not documentary photography, but I no. think by by doing what you do, you have created this kind of time capsule. This um, witness of life. Yeah, life. Of, yeah. of the world at the time that you were on the planet, which I know sounds obvious and literal. But if you think of like when you were talking about extraordinary um, things, if you think about your series of Concord um, photographs, like the 56 uh, mm -hmm. color photographs of Concords, like that, that, that always struck me as an incredibly powerful installation because of this mm. idea of the kind of celebrating perhaps or, or just observing this kind of feat of engineering as well. But they and were taken from people's gardens, weren't they? And they were just, they were, mm. it wasn't like it was taken in a really beautiful set up situation at the airport. They were taken well, no, like it's real. passing. It's, it's, authentic. it's real. And it, yeah. And you can relate to that experience of sitting in your garden and seeing a plane go above you. Yeah. But the fact that the Concorde is no longer there, I know it's quite an obvious example, but, but can you talk a bit about that series of Concorde images yeah. and why that yeah. you were drawn to those? Um, it um, um, 
It struck me for some time, sort of living in London um, and actually New York in the mid '90s, uh, um, that um, when you're in South London, um, at particular like two times a day, um, there would be Concorde flying over, and uh, and and I noticed it occasionally, and and every time I noticed it. Um, I felt incredibly special, like wow, this is incredible, and um, and and I felt this sort of pull and desire of um, something from the space age. You know, remember she uh, yeah. she <laughs> it it first uh, took off in 1969, the year of mm. the moon landing, and then started commercial flying in 1976. Uh, so it's a, and I realized this is the last relic of the space age that still looks as good and um, and uh, and futuristic as it looked on its first day, whereas right. a lot of things, other things that were designed in the 60s at that point looked aged. And, um, and I noticed, um, um, like it, it happened one more time, like in 96, um, and then I realized, you know, this idea to do something, to speak about this feeling of this super futuristic thing in the sky, uh, project me projecting hopes of a better future through technology um, onto this here in the mid-late 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, we are far less future positive um, mm -hmm. um, is something I have to talk about. I have to make a work, work about, and um, and when something, an idea, knocks on my subconscious for the third time, uh, then I have to act upon it. That's like a creative rule. Sometimes you think like a um, like a rule I've observed or discovered for myself that um, because there's nothing that was written all over this plane flying in the sky, that this is going to be an interesting work. Um, but so it's easy to overlook the most original ideas that you have because right. they look like nothing. They look really oh. not so special. Um, and then I pursued it um, and then spent three weeks, four weeks uh, uh, underneath the flight path in south uh, west London and, uh, and also in Hatton Cross outside of Heathrow Airport mm -hmm. and uh, also the, around the perimeter fence uh, mingling with, the, um, with other plane spotters and, uh, mm -hmm. and always gazing into the far and thinking, is it Concord or is it an MD-80? You know, the McDonald's eight, Mac, Mac, McDonald Douglas 80, which had two um, engines at the rear, which somehow looked like a... Um, uh -huh. Anyway, it was a very romantic time. It was the most happy time that I had with Jochen Klein, uh, uh, my partner, and uh, Hale Bob. The comet was in the sky in spring '97, Easter '97, and uh, Concord is, of course, also the beautiful name uh, describing the uh, concordial work together of two nations. In this case, of France and England developing together this um, um, dream which we all know was flawed uh, as it mm. was an mental nightmare but anyway I should stop yeah. Well, no, but do you think now then, to talking about like at that point, you like future positive then, I mean, in the current climate, where the world's at now, 
you saying you get the the rules if you've been like three knocks for an idea what has anything come out in this current climate that you're now that's triggered you off somewhere and spiraled you into a different uh, body of work mm. um, <clears throat> not something like um like particular i mean certain um I, um um no actually yeah i mean i am um i the, i am working on a on a project that, well, that one could similarly describe as super simple and super sort of uh, has been done a million times before um mm-hmm. and i somehow look at it in a different way and uh, and i um and i will show it for the first time in november hopefully at uh, uh, Buchholz Gallery in Berlin. Oh, great. And, um, and um, uh, unfortunately, I don't want to talk about it. But you don't I, what get, has, you spoil it, yeah. But, yeah. But has uh, um, sort of recent knocks on that door of subconsciousness uh, um, has been words um, somehow feeling more and more how important language is for me and. Uh, and um, that's been a development over recent years sort of using words to also say them, speak them, sing them, or how words show up in actual pictures uh, that are right into um, abstract pictures like uh, this, I feel better in the city, um, or how likely is it that only I'm right in this matter? Um, mm-hmm. Somehow, in the moment you read them, um, they answer sort of right back to you, or ask right back, and and that that sort of intersection of language and um, or not so intersection of pure language interests me. So this is an investigation you're going into now, and and maybe sort of am encouraged, feel encouraged to to go further into right, yeah right, right. And, and 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 interestingly um so and then there's always photography coming around the corner <laughs> and <laughs> and and i rediscover my passion for photography and i realize of course that is the heartbeat that underlies it all and um and i've just done a 20 page portfolio for um id magazine and uh oh, great and just and and on the newsstand now is a fifty-page portfolio at uh, Arena On Plus, which somehow chronicles the two months before the lockdown, where there was no sort of real idea of what's going to happen. Happened, there was yeah. no no, um, um, and then these uh, um, twenty pages for ID and another twenty pages for Dust magazine. Wow, they're both sort of with done now in lockdown and uh, mm-hmm. and described from different angles uh, a very passionate uh, uh, passion through photography mm. but your work is hopeful i mean that that's for me what i take away from all of your work all your photography is there is it's full of hope and i don't know if that's um because you are a hopeful person well, it must be. I mean, it's obviously your work, but it, it, it has this um, vibe about it. And I don't know then if that's also because like you're always hopeful as a photographer for the perfect image to 
be made by yourself that that translates into the actual imagery yeah i mean i'm not hoping for the um that perfect is of course only can only be defined by um hope and expectation and result mm -hmm. you know that's what success ultimately is no? if um uh, it's it's never an absolute measure no is this uh, perfect uh, it only um is a disappointment if your expectations were too high or if they were somewhere else than what the result is like um but i um i so i don't uh, but i look for um you know to do justice to things uh, to um um that is enough you know i don't want to exaggerate things i don't want to uh, i don't have time for cynicism to look down on things uh, um um like when i was um during the travels for neue welt i um saw once a man uh, wearing a t-shirt uh, on the front it says never look down on someone and on the back it said unless you're helping them up yes um, you know like 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 yeah. i just, um, mm. i mean i i um i try to um stay out of cynicism um but i do like humor i do like absurdity um mm -hmm. um and uh, but it is all underpinned by um a positive outlook um and um because you know if everything was so terrible about humanity um then i mean sorry at the moment that i say it yes of course humanity is humanity is terrible um it again and again comes up with ways to make other people's lives hell so yes. mm. you really have to ask yourself what the fuck is this uh, uh, are we is there really a reason to be so hopeful um and on the other hand um i am and i do think um 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 without hope there is then there is also no hope uh, so it's a self-fulfilling um prophecy you know like one mm -hmm. uh, but it's also not a blind like how like hey it's all great uh, it comes from um it comes from also experiencing maybe also the the um uh, tragedy and um an intense pressure psychological pressure of growing up in the aids uh, crisis mm -hmm. um um when you know like you realize like yeah the, this is life threatening this is potentially this uh, romance can kill you and at the same time uh, um you are people are dancing people do carry on um people um um it's it's somehow um there is joy and and happiness despite the tragedy right. i cannot think i cannot think happiness um without the tragedy i mean the tragedy of life life per se is tragic um mm. and uh um and so you know the joy and the elation and the happiness we um, or contentment we feel um 
can only ever be anyway a, a, a humble one if it's an honest one. And and so that hope is not is not a triumphant hope. It's always a hope within an awareness of the tragedy of life. Mm. Yes, I think that there's an amazing. I think one of your most powerful images is a uh, work called Seventeen Years Supply," which mm. is is has that that uh, crossover of very hopeful, but it's also kind of got the tragic connotations of. Uh, the HIV/AIDS epidemic. Can you talk a bit about that image? Yeah, um, it's um, like I said. I grew up. Um, I, I had um, um, sex for the first time with a man outside of school uh, um, when I was sixteen in nineteen eighty-four. The same month that um, that AIDS was first on the cover of Der Spiegel. A national mm-hmm. weekly and um and and somehow i've been terrified by this all my youth and adult early adult years and yes. and stayed careful and then in a in some tragic way or um, uh, i did um um catch the virus and um and found myself um, positive at the same time as as Jochen was diagnosed surprisingly and and died within a month, um, and um, and it was literally a year after triple therapy combination therapy had been discovered in 1996, and uh, mm-hmm. and um, and I had said to Jochen uh, then, hey, one should actually test now uh, because now there is a there is a medication for it because you know before um, there was always this um, um, dilemma amongst people should I test or should I not test because if you test you know you're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it and if you don't test you torment yourself about not knowing Mm -hmm. Um, it was a lose-lose either way and suddenly there was a way suddenly there was a new medication that um that worked and um and so um then Jochen had no opportunity to benefit from the pills because he was put on a ventilator due to a um heavy pneumonia not actually very unlike the um lung conditions people die of now with COVID nineteen, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. and um, and then and I took the pills and I somehow, you know, like like was always in awe of um, this little matter, this little blue pill and this little orange yellow pill and this white pill, um, thinking, what is this? You know, what is inside of this? I mean, this matter. Uh, and and that inside my body travels like a laser guided weapon to each cell each individual cell and and blocks the hiv contact gene there and yeah. uh, and so um um in sort of gratitude and and awe um and a bit of nerdiness and hoarderness, i kept every canister of pills that i've been taken since 97 and um, and then in uh, and sort of kept them here and there and then in, in 
I think when is that from 2014? I, uh, I think I um, I looked at and put them all together in one big um, removal carton, but it's actually only one big removal box, you know. And I thought this mm -hmm. is 17 years supply. That's the reason why I'm still alive. That's this mm -hmm. physical stuff is why I'm here, and um, and it's also. Um, so it's very existential, the picture. Yeah. And, and it's I, so powerful. On, on the box, on the bottles, um, then from the NHS, because they were all from the time that I lived in London, and uh, um, uh, it said my name. No? And I didn't initially make the picture thinking I will make this public, but, um, but then I... Um, um, I showed it and, um, and um, I mean, had sort of been out kind of anyway, um, but, um, but sort of to put the, this on the wall um, also felt then about time. No? Yeah. Did it feel, did you feel, was there a certain fear in yourself to show that side of your life? To expose yourself that in a, in a gallery space. Well, I've I've um, you know I've been very sort of outspoken about my care and, and interest and involvement in in HIV um, and and its effects on humanity. Like I was uh, uh, making pictures of a congress in South Africa um, and then produce a, a public. Um, um, health pamphlet, brochure leaflet. pamphlet, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Um, um, together with um, HIV Base, the London charity, uh, and uh, uh, Friends of Treatment Action campaign in South Africa. So I've been always um, like not far from the subject, but on the other hand, always felt that people um, have such a sort of um, fear of AIDS. Uh, mm. That they um, they think that that they can hardly then disengage from looking at an artist work um, from thinking that there's it's all about death and uh, and the potential um, um, the potential of death or the the certainty of death and um, and I. Um, wanted to protect my work from being seen in this way. And mm -hmm. uh, that's why I never sort of, until 2015, were specific about me, myself. Because, you know, like, like AIDS had an impact on my life, um, and particularly heavily and destructively um, in the years when I was positive. Uh, oh, sorry, when I was HIV negative. Um, mm -hmm. When there was no hope or treatment um, mm. and uh, but you know since 1996 in the western world um, um, it is now something that is treatable and um, and um, and so it feels yeah it's important to take away the stigma um, yes. and that um, um, and uh, but I also feel in times like these, um, you know, and I've always been aware that um, this medication depends on companies that make them and and on insurance yeah. systems that pay for them. So I have mm -hmm. I have like a, a fundamental interest in 
a good governance in functioning society. I'm I'm no friend of uh, sort of accelerationists of like people that want the big bang that want it all to explode in order to build a better society. I need pharma companies or somebody to actually a system that is maintaining these complicated medic medicine for me. Thank you for sharing that, Wolfgang. That was really, really fucking brilliant. Thank you. Thank oh. you so much. Um, yeah. There was a really interesting article a few days ago in, in The Guardian um, talking about this COVID crisis and about how it actually is raising hopes to end like UK transmission of HIV because people obviously haven't been having as much sex or any sex while they've been locked down at home alone or if you know if they're single they're not going out to meet partners or what have you um and there's this big kind of idea that if people can get tested now it's a really ah. important thing to do before you go back into the world because they've never had a time where um all different communities of people have just been like locked indoors so um it was a really Incredible. fascinating article it's worth reading um incredible because yeah, it was written by michael sedgelov Okay. The incubation period of HIV until you can detect antibodies is three months. Right. So exactly, if, if people don't, if everybody doesn't have casual sex for three months, uh, it would be incredible. Yeah, everybody tests and then those who are positive get on treatment. And Precisely. It's a thing of the past. New infections would be a thing of the past. Yeah, yeah. and it was quite an impactful in article to read because it kind of makes you realize that it is possible. You know what I mean? It's quite, you know, it's an amazing thing anyway. And thank you so much for showing that story. Yeah. Of your, um, hmm. your life. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Let's talk about your awards, Wolfgang. You have multiple <laughs> awards, but the one that is the most famous for us is the Hasselblad Award, but also the 2000, year 2000 Turner Prize, which you won. And how was that as, uh, I think you were the first photographer to win it as well. How was that being nominated and prior to the award and then post the award, how did it change your life and did it change your life? Um. It, um, I remember when Nick Sorota called me in June 2000, um, was it June? I think it was definitely a June, um, to tell me you have just been nominated to the Turner Prize. Uh, um, I, um, really felt like, 
Hmm, great, great. Uh, but hmm, it shot through my head, um, um, you know, with the sort of viciousness of some parts of the press. Uh, I thought mm. um, I don't want to be, and the scandalization around the Turner Prize in the late 90s. Totally. I thought, yeah. how, how would a gay German uh, go down? Um, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. For, for oh, yeah. the British, you know, the biggest British art prize. <laughs> yeah. right? British art, uh, and um, and I really asked, like, can I think about this for a day? And uh, and um, and um, I really have felt extremely welcome um, in the UK from the first days in college um, in 1990. Um, um, but I was aware of a xenophobic um, side in. Um, in the right-wing press, um, and mm-hmm. um, and then it turned out to be um, this experience, which um, was more powerful than than I anticipated. Because within the art world, one has always looked at the Turner Press also with a pinch of salt. You know, like mm-hmm. the drama of it is untypical of how one should really talk about art. You know, like artists shouldn't really compete in a horse race. You know, it's yeah. something... Um, so there always has been a slight sort of... Okay. Um, but then... Um, then uh, winning it was... was uh, um, making me briefly, uh, literally famous. Um, and it lasted a week. Um, but... Uh, but for a very brief moment, uh, like the next day, I, I left the, uh, my house in, in uh, Grayson Road, and uh, and after six meters, a cyclist said, "Hey, congratulations, Wolfgang!" Um, <laughs> wow! And 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 literally, I had TV recognition, um, um, and and uh, for a few days, no? and and then. Uh, um, it sort of drifted away to being only known uh, within, you know, like a sort of certain scenes. Yes. Um, but that was fascinating to observe um, and also to observe that to stay like really famous, you have to be in the in the media all the time. All the time. Yes. yes. To really be a household what, name, yeah. What was the prize <laughs> money then? It was 20 grand. And what did you... And, did you put that back into art like creating art um yeah i had um i had this uh, dream of owning my own color photocopier um <sighs> which um which um i then did buy uh, i love that story i love that <laughs> so from your turner prize winnings you had a dream and you bought a color photocopy which changed your work but, oh my god that's yeah, so that's why you was a worthy winner because look what you did with the the, the winnings. That's amazing. So like, yeah, half a ten ten grand I gave I put on, on put into that, and and um, it's been a wonderful tool ever since. And I, I then, Do you still use the same machine? You've still got it since uh, the two thousands. Uh, it then like uh, obviously expired soon because they stopped making it, and then I got like a it exchanged for a later model which. Um, London Graphics Center stopped servicing like uh, 
in 2010 or something, or 2011. And then I moved the studio to Berlin, and now, I mean, this must be the last machine that's still operating, and nobody services it. I'm only like a retired guy that used to do Canon photocopiers in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's but, amazing. Uh, and actually, uh, one of Russell's favorite works by you is actually one that he, he wanted to to um have in his collection for a long long time and he yeah. regularly would call me up text me send me screenshots of it i mean literally for a long long time it went on for years yeah. Yeah. it's a kind of a very distinct memory of my early friendship with russell for like the first kind of three four years and it then was, eventually I, I want, he was able to, to get it from you but from um, maureen paley gallery but i was like i want barnaby photocopy that was always my favorite and i have that now and that was always my favorite image of yours is on the cover of the lighter publication oh, yeah, and yeah. and that and that image was just my favorite and i have that and i absolutely love it can we oh. talk about that image and who is barnaby and is he like someone in your life still is he how did you come across that and then that was like what you did is you photocopied that and then you took a photograph of the photocopy yeah which is a um so a rare process it's there's only like a Maybe it's the only one of that because later I returned to this uh, to sort of re-photographing photocopies, but using actually a high-resolution drum scanner um, mm -hmm. in the 2008 or nine uh, pictures of the forests and uh, and mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, so it's it's. Um, 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 so the original is from college days, and uh, and uh, and then it's a transformation through a photocopy that I made in the process of layouting a book, but then really liked what was left from this color photograph in this mm -hmm. in this reduction, uh, which is on, at the same time reduction and sort of con intensifying. No, the yes, the, um, the eyes, the, yeah. Yeah, and um, and then um, and then yeah. So that, that that photocopy then was special to me, and I maybe sometimes uh, came across it. And then in nineteen ninety four, I photographed it, and uh, and then only like ten twelve years later did I then. Even though the photograph is actually in the if one thing matters, everything matters. Yes. Book. Um, but then again, I didn't really enlarge it proper and make it a piece until it landed on the cover of, uh, of Lighter in 2008. So uh -huh. sometimes pictures uh, take literally years, um, in this case, 14 years to mature because I, I really often mistrust pictures, you know, like how likely is, the, how likely is that this negative is a really special work. You know, it's very unlikely, yeah. and so I uh, I try to sort of um, uh, resist the charm of work until I'm sure that that is not just a, an empty allure. Yeah. Oh, Who and was Barnaby a, fr a lot of friend of yours from Bournemouth? Then Didn't, is he, do you still see him? Uh, yeah, um, um, we are. Um, uh, not in touch, but uh, yeah, he was uh, in the year above me, and and uh, and it was a very um, uh, warm time 
um, that those 1990, 91, 92 in Bournemouth with uh, the very close-knit community of students hanging out together and and uh, and nurturing each other, critiquing each other, and um, and um, yeah. Oh, love that. And, <laughs> love that. Yeah, there was a fond eye at play. Well, the one that one I have is from a series of three, and you, the, your works, kind of from take edition of three. For edition of three, I mean, sorry, yes. And but I'm talking about like, um, so the rules you've set yourself for when you make uh, images that are able to be acquired by institutions or private collections, they come in three sizes. You have a smaller yes. size, which is an edition of 10, a medium size, which is edition of three, and then you have uh, unique pieces that are larger one-offs. Yes. This is something that you set a rule for yourself. How did you come to that? And do you ever feel like you want to break that? Yeah, it's it's um, um, it's strange. Like I arrived at that in '93 uh, with my first exhibitions at Daniel Buchholz and Maureen Paley, and uh, and uh, it's something I came up with. Um, and um, and back in the days, the large ones were um, uh, already inkjet prints, unframed inkjet prints, um, mm-hmm. when nobody used inkjet prints in, in fine art printing. And uh, and I made them on a, it was called Canon A1 fo- uh, color photocopier, a uh, bubble jet copier. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it was a gigantic photocopier. Um, and I liked the idea that this is uh, this largest and most rare work, unique work, is actually a large photocopy, and mm-hmm. um, and the edition of ten um, were prints that I made um, in the small dark room on the toilet in my uh, flat chair in <laughs> uh, in Baker Street um, um, by hand in a small processing machine and and. Um, and the number ten seemed realistic because each print was made with care, and 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 uh, um, and uh, the, I couldn't sort of make three hundred of them. It was, yeah. uh, and and so the larger edition, um, the unlimited edition, were the magazines. I always saw a magazine page as also a work, um, right. which only cost three three pounds, and. Um, and um, and then the so the smallest smaller size is the um, twelve sixteen inches, which is the biggest the smallest size in which the full potential of a work reveals itself for me. Yeah. And then the twenty four um, inch size is the largest uh, paper size that I felt I can handle safely, that I can hang unmounted. Um, mm. And then the large picture. Um, which then has transformed through various developments in inkjet printing um, um, and has then, since I decided in 1999 to also show some works framed um, in order to keep this um, materiality of the photographs active from people not just expecting me to be everything unframed, um, so I make the large works um, um, one in framed and one unframed, which is a very different experience. 
and uh, and it somehow stuck, um, and I never changed the structure. No, the ten, three, one, and one. So um, much of your hand in the smallest sizes. Then that's really more like your physical being going into creating them images. Yeah, um, it's. Um, I mean, they're all um, um, initialed on the back. No, like there's always a print date, and when it's initialed, it's from either me myself or from the studio, made in the studio, and mm-hmm. and the transfer to digital um, um, photography has really meant that since 2011 12 um my work is has has come closer to my hands again no? because i'm really processing every picture and uh, wow. um whereas like in the 2000s i had a um, assistant um uh, most of the time the wonderful kylie newton uh, mm-hmm. from new zealand um and uh and who would uh, print with me, but he, she would actually do the printing in the dark room, and um, and so the yeah, like the photographs are very, the prints are very hand on, hands on, and can only be really made in this um, um, uh, close quality environment that is the studio. I'm so happy to hear you talk about magazines as well as being an artwork in their own right, because there's something quite unique about the way that you install exhibitions, which Mm -hmm. the minute you walk into a room, you know, it's Wolfgang Tillman's exhibition because, you know, like you were talking about those larger paper size, the way you will hang it off like bulldog clips or the tables, the tape to the wall sometimes, which always worries me, but yeah. (laughs) And also like wooden tables to kind of display, you know, whether it be vitrines exactly but that was such a kind of i feel like so many people have kind of riffed off that which is a great thing but i still feel like you're the kind of when i come to your shows i feel like it means more it feels more authentic how did you come to approach installation and is it a very important thing to how you want to present the work um yeah i I think i mean there there is a um, rhythm underlying my installations that uh, that is uh, that it com- is composed of these three sizes plus the postcard size uh, small print uh, like these four sizes uh, mm-hmm. um, they are building a rhythm within which everything else is possible there's no rules or limits but uh, but um, and that this is there's this this matrix or this back, I don't know what is, if matrix is actually the right word, uh, um, I call it the rhythm of like um, these different sizes. Um, um, they have been now going on for 27 years and, uh, and within it I have endless, uh, and with those I have endless opportunities to create new rooms and, uh, and it's been... Um, I don't know, like clear to me from that uh, those first shows in ninety two, ninety three, that um, that I want to treat um, the gallery wall um, and its corners, in particular the corners, the intersections, the doors, mm-hmm. the the light, the alarm panel. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to to um, feel them. I want to make be aware that I'm standing in a corner or I want to feel that I'm standing uh, five meters back from a wall. And that um, um, 
um, that is unique about being in a space. Um, photographs sit really well on a printed page, and that is an incredible, unique experience that you can have with photography on your toilet or in your bed or at the kitchen table, mm -hmm. which you can't have with painting or sculpture. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so for me to go into the space um, has has always been naturally about experiencing the the very objects of the that the photographs are. Um, you know, a photograph is for me an embodied image. Um, it's it's a very thin cube. It has it. It's not two dimensional only. It has a third dimension. It does protrude into space only one or two millimeters. Um, um, but um, so the taping was also about the question: How can I bring this extremely simple? but extremely powerful and charged object onto the wall and showing it exactly as it is, as powerful as it is, but also not pretend and make more of it, um, not put it behind a thick window mount and uh, posh frame yeah. without putting it on a pedestal, yeah. letting, mm -hmm. letting it self fight it out for battle it out for for its, its hierarchy in the space which is yeah. again like you're yeah you're allowing it you're not really um giving anything you're not putting the pedestalling anything is what you just said yeah and i think that's it's actually a very generous act because it, yeah. it it does it does give a kind of sense of um power to the viewer you know for them to work out what they want to take from it yeah yeah it was it made it um I mean, it was the right choice, uh, but it also, um, you know, when you don't put something on the pedestal, when you make things look easier, um, mm -hmm. uh, it also causes some part of the audience to think that it actually is easy or that it oh. is actually uh, uh, careless or that, that the things that are put on, uh, that are looking complicated are actually better. So it's it's... Now, I mean, I'm, I'm of course, I'm, I'm very um, grateful for um, having often a very positive reception to my work, but uh, mm -hmm. it wasn't always unanimous in the past. No, there were mm -hmm. people uh, particularly maybe enraged by um, um, why is that that any good, no? and what is this gesture, and and. Uh, and that were like what you now say as sort of generosity, um, uh, they were really offended by it. Yeah. Um, it's sort of, um, I mean, there were always people that strongly supported it. Um, yes, so me. I never complained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The I, lo I love the, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love the fact that you, you keep referring back to the sculptural element of your photography, and there's there's a, there's a, a series of um, works by you that have the header uh, the umbrella paper drop, which um, mm. I'm obsessed with, and mm. they are photographic paper that you then roll or fold into a sculptural element, photograph it, and then it goes back to being flat again. And I love the the mm. lineage of the storyline of of this these works mm -hmm. but how, was that was that a happy accident as well like you said about the jeans over the banister and these are something that you are continually investigating as well 
They are, yeah. Um, it is... Um, 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 it's... Yeah, it's, it's something that... Um, it took me... 2001 is the first, and then 2005 was the, the third. Um, the first one that was actually like this drop shape. And, uh, and yeah, it took me... Um, 15 years to to maybe go the next step you know, from like showing like being aware how important that very sheet of paper is to me mm-hmm. to actually making the sheet of paper subject of the photograph itself um, mm-hmm. it's so so simple on the one hand uh, but there's also like nothing says that one should do that, you know. So mm-hmm. it was like mm-hmm. a, um, it was um, a um, um, yeah, and and so initially, I made this photograph in two thousand one called Paper Drop, which was um, a photo hanging on a wall only with one piece of tape and curling, curling halfway around with a, a very long shadow from a low standing sun and um and then um in 2005 i saw a piece of paper folded onto itself um with the white the back of the paper on the outside and the black on the inside and mm-hmm. and it created a drop like shape and i saw that and photographed it and so the name became kind of self uh, paper filling. Oh, I thought it was um, like a droplet. That's what I see. It's the actual paper dropping. Um, well, like... that, 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 that's what what it um, the original one was uh, referring yeah. to because it looked like dropping. And then uh, and then the, the current the, the ones the ones you refer to are drop shape. No, but they also have like the um, kind of uh, uh, the shape of the section of a wing. Or there, there is there's some there's something. Uh, about that shape that um, I sometimes wonder why is that so satisfying and I think it is because it is the interplay between two physical forces really which is on the one hand the paper tension and on Mm. the other hand gravity you know like the gravity that holds it down and of Mm. course the tension that, that bows it up and it's this sort of equilibrium wherever that comes to rest that creates the shape and um, and I've somehow been fortunate in in kind of all different types of works that I do um, that I was able to maintain uh, to not do more just because there's a large demand and because yeah, right. I I realized early on that um, a work always talks about the intentions behind it. Um, you cannot lie about the intentions behind it. And so if you're genuinely interested in something, um, when you're looking at something with genuine interest, um, there is almost little that can go wrong because then that interest translates itself into the work. Whereas if you um, create a picture with a greedy aspect, um, mm. or I want more of this, um, then immediately that magic is gone and only the desire of more 
is written into the work somehow subtly and uh, and so um, I kind of only um, do go back to them when I feel like I I'm approaching them with a fresh um, set of desire or like a, um, respect respect or interest yeah. um, and um, and uh, yeah so they're Oh, that's it's, such that's such a great I, I mean that's such great advice as well for artists to think about I think and all of us to think about it's transferable totally it is I, I also um have a similar satisfaction from looking at those paper drop works um that I also do with your um Fry Schwimmer series yes um, which, which are made which, without a camera yeah, there was all these myths about those works. I remember it being very secretive and I was trying to find out whether it, because I used to think, was it blood? Was it like, I don't know, inside the body or was it, you know, re related to pigments? And, you know, there's all these ideas of what it could be. Mm -hmm. And people used to come up to me and say these kind of crazy myths like, oh, he has, he has like, I don't know, fire engine toys on his studio floor that the lights like, you know, are used. All this kind of weird shit I used to be told. And I was like, what is this bullshit? So I've always wanted to talk to you <laughs> to find out whether it is bullshit or whether it's actually true. <laughs> or whether it's a secret. <laughs> um, but I, I'm always um, quite open and frank about how I make them. Uh, okay. Um, um, like I, I uh, make them with light sources in my hand um, that I manipulate light onto uh, photographic paper in a dry dark room, um, okay. and then I um, I take the paper and put it through a processing machine where it then meets the regular liquids, you not know, the developer and the fix and the wash. Um, uh -huh. But any kind of suggestion of liquidity of or materiality that um, the eye then sees or the brain actually makes up out of the information that the eye sees uh, yeah. is only in the viewer's um, projection, um, projection uh, whereas mm -hmm. the picture is completely made in a dry and, and um, with, with light being the only substance in inverted commas. Um, and, and what exactly I'm doing there um, is uh, I don't explain at greater detail because um, I want to, there to be a parity between the um, photographs that I made with a camera mm -hmm. that for me um, are just as um, experimental or they are just as much beyond um, what can be technically specifically described um, because, you know, like... Uh, um, to hold an apparatus in front of another person and let light fall through the lens onto the back of the camera um, where there's a piece of film, that in itself doesn't explain anything. Mm. You know, like that act, like what like physically happens there, uh, how that diaphragm goes to 5.6 and the shutter uh, goes a hundred and a five hundredth of a second uh, uh, onto those silver halide crystals in that film, um, that doesn't explain why this picture is what it is and, and touches you the way it does. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so because people don't ask me those questions about the in-camera pictures, um, 
there, there is always an assumption people think they know what goes on with a out of camera picture but yeah. um so I, I like to be very open what i do technically yes i manipulate yeah. light but um that, yeah there's also but there's also again a sculptural element to these because it isn't without a camera you're manipulating this paper you're creating this sculpture with photography paper through photography mm-hmm. in the in the paper drop yes yeah in no the, no but in the in the fry swim fry swimmer as well i feel like that's that's like a sculptural thing that you're creating with your hands you're sculpting yeah. this image this flat yeah. image yeah um i guess yes so there is uh um there is um there is a interplay between sort of hope uh or between control and hope um it's sort of uh, an ongoing approximation no, of observing uh, cause and effect uh, because because you don't see i can only see what i see um and but the translation i only see five minutes later after the uh, picture is processed and so with that in mind you go into the next and and uh, and uh, do something differently or try to achieve this or, or enhance that and uh, mm-hmm. um, and and that interplay of um, chance and control is something that i found uh, to be the sort of backbone of everything that i do no it's like i try to do as hard as i can i try to prepare as best as possible but always allow chance in allow what language cannot put into words allow that in because mm-hmm. that makes you know if, if you only carelessly and arrogantly say, oh, I don't need to plan, I don't know, oh, whatever, I'm genius, it's just going to be great, um, then that's what it talks about. No? And that isn't, mm. uh, for me, it, 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 it has to have, like, a personally, I feel I have to um, have cared enough and worked hard enough uh, mm. for then also, but then to let go. <laughs> and, mm. and that or something that um, is easily talked about and it sounds sort of very um, um, understandable yeah. um, but uh, but of course the 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 bad the, the tricky thing about this is is that it's constantly quicksand so the moment you think you have managed that balance of chance and control of course yeah. that bit of chance immediately becomes part of control and mm. goes dead and so you know you have to keep that how to keep that alive that is an artist's job all like all life long um, but that is in itself your genius that's why your work is so um revered and why you are so successful and respected it's- it's also interesting the idea that you are so interested in music because I think through live performance of music and whether you're experiencing it as a viewer or whether you're actually performing the music, I think there's always that element that things can go wrong. You're kind of like on, it's almost like being a tightrope walker and kind of like, you know, you might fall at some point or, you know, maybe technology will fail you as well. Like maybe a mic will break or what have you. And I find it quite interesting that you've also gone on to be so involved making music, releasing music, as well as making music videos and taking photos of musicians. But um, 
do you, mm. what, what what sort of led you to music or was it something that you've always just had alongside your your artwork i mean it's it's been um it's been um an, a, a huge thing in my life um since my youth no it's it's mm-hmm. um, it's been um but just like art i it was nothing that i was particularly nurtured in me or i wasn't good at playing anything and so when i when i um started to turn my dream of uh, of being making music um um into a reality with my friend bert uh, lesman in 1985 yes. 86 uh, um um there was no one paying attention or like, like like taking this seriously and and it was just the two of us in the basement room of uh, our friend Ute's house um mm-hmm. and um and uh, and then after a year or so Bert uh, had to leave town and I never mustered up the courage really to um make music with somebody else and uh, and uh, but I did keep some tape cassette with tape recordings uh, from that time and uh, mm-hmm. um and then uh, later 2016 um digitized them and uh, and actually liked some of the things that i heard yeah. um, um and oh, you're an amazing live performer as well i've seen you perform yeah. live and people listening you need to download wolfgang's music because it's just your spoken word and the way that you uh, express yourself through your singing voice and through your music is is so just cool. It's fucking cool. <laughs> and oh, it's not, I'm a big, I'm a massive fan. It was such I, I also a brilliant think night. The people that you've given a platform to over the years, because yeah. I remember coming to um, Between Bridges years and years ago, and Nobra doing a performance. I used to. I used to see her a lot because we were in the club scene at the same time. She was obviously way cooler than me because she just is. Um, she didn't wear a bra. But yeah. um, she's just so cool. I mean, did she not wear a bra? Is that her name? Incredibly I don't know powerful. Yeah, she didn't wear a bra. She was always topless when she performed, and she had this amazing nice. long hair. And I think Wolfgang is... photographed her a lot. But yeah, I-, I loved the fact that you supported her as well. Yeah, um, I photographed her recent album's cover. Um, which... Right. Oh, cool. Which, uh, like last year, last summer, and uh, and that's well worth checking out on Spotify, etc. Uh, no yeah. bra, love no and, bra, yeah. And uh, yeah. but anyway, like in um, two thousand, uh, yeah, like five, four years ago, I um, after having been, yeah, close to music all my life, close to musicians through photography of friendship um, um, all my life, but then also starting to having occasionally DJed uh, since 99, uh, um, but then also having um, more seriously continued to make um, field recordings with audio recorders um, for like 10 years, but never having really time or the energy to to do something with them. Um, things came together and maybe also triggered through an understanding that my lectures, uh, talks at um, uh, unis or public talks um, um, often attracted like crowds of 500 people um, that mm. somehow like to listen to me um, for like sometimes 70, 80 minutes. And it, mm. you, you pick up like if a if a 
room is nervous and tired and bored or if, if there is something connected. You can read the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, well, it's the same as this talk art interview. We, we've got about 70, <laughs> 80 minutes of you talking on here. So you can which, gauge from the comments when it comes out. <laughs> you, you, you promised 40 minutes. I, no, we have to quit. No, but this is we have to quit. <laughs> yes we've got one we've got two more two two questions for you then every question we ask every guest that comes on is if you could do an art heist you could have any work of art in the world to yourself whatever it is what would it be and why um, uh, it would be who is afraid of red blue and yellow from barnett newman oh wow is that a zip painting or is that? Yeah, um, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, it is. Where, did, where have uh, you it seen that? In my head, uh, it's um, it's famously in the Neue Nationalgalerie in Berlin, um, yeah. and uh, but you know, like that just popped into my head, and and mm. I mean it, but um, maybe actually then from Barnett Newman, a much longer passion of mine is Clifford Stills. Mm-hmm. I love Clifford Still. He's one of my favorite yeah? artists. Yeah, I think he's the greatest. Yeah, amazing. No, like, like yeah. uh, that's so that would be cool. <laughs> really cool. Right. I, I went we to Denver to see his museum, and I love oh, that really? whole story okay. that he was so protective over his art, and he hardly sold any of it, and that he wanted to protect it. And then when he died, he had that that kind of um, you know people had to like bid to have his museum. It's such an amazing story, the whole thing. I know. His work is just exquisite. And nature and all of the links to it is just so good. That's the one aspect I I don't like so much, like this uh, super caginess, protectiveness. Really? Yeah. Yeah, like like wanting, like insisting on your own museum. And his own uh, rooms to have his work or whatever. Yeah. I hope there's not going to be a museum... uh, devoted to my work i always find that something there will be if it's down to us wolfgang definitely, <laughs> definitely. at least your work is very well distributed already like, yes you're very democratic internationally with where and it in goes. different museums yeah. and yeah. yeah i just That's think it. he was so eccentric and that kind of yeah. that kind of um obsessiveness with his own you know and protectiveness of his own work you sometimes feel it in the work like it's just got this super intense charge i think i don't know i don't i love mm. it mm. Amazing. The other question we ask is, what is your favourite colour and why? Um, I um, I think it must be like a kind of darkish green um, nice. and... Uh, um, I've just been like to a stone merchant this afternoon and looking at some stone for a floor and uh, I had no idea that there's a green slate um, and uh, well, naturally and, uh, a natural green nat- slate natural yeah from Brazil oh. um, oh. no idea and and uh, and it's oh, that uh, sounds nice not particularly expensive but it has like a depth uh, um, that um, yeah so uh, are you going to uh, get that for whatever you're building yeah I think Great. so. So there is, uh, yeah, like uh, between plant and olive and and uh, um, different shades of green. Mm. Mm. Good one. Love that. 
I was actually thinking a lot this morning about the colour red because of a photograph that you took in Brighton um, of Edward Enningfall when he was much younger and you were much younger in the kind of early 90s, coming <clears> out of a night, nightclub, I think, at like 6am, Edward told me. Oh, was it Bristol? Yeah. I thought it was Brighton, <laughs> but yeah, I got it wrong. Um, yeah, I was talking to Edward about it this morning because he's um, just been a guest on the show. Himself, yeah, sends his love. He sends his love. Oh, really? but, um, I oh, love yeah. the red, um, the red behind him. Yes. Like, and the way that when you develop a photograph and you have the, you know, the kind of shiny surface, how the red is always so like powerful, like as a color. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's um, what, um, what it really is, is about, <laughs> you know, like, like what I said to, uh, earlier on about the sort of thinking about the three dimensional world and mm -hmm. translating it into the two. Um, the other thing that I am um, thinking about every day and every month and at all times in my work is color and, uh, and how that sits, how they sit with each other, what, what hues and saturations and and uh, and um, and how it tingles and tickles the retina, you know what that does. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's it's a uh, it's a uh, you know some things are some something I maybe even are physiological, you know, like why do we like the red green contrast so much? Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. That may have something to do with physics and, and the eye and the way uh, that color is translated, that this green, red, like a bottle green together with a really intense uh, red is just very satisfying to look at. And then to spot that at work um, and take it out because it's too satisfying. Um, and then allowing it in another moment, actually allowing it to play um, in its uh, in its sort of cousin of orange and light green, but then mm -hmm. orange and light green that's like could be super late nine late, late postmodern early nineties yes. combination, and is that overstated? You know that sort of <laughs> stuff is thinking. These going constant on. battles These in your mind are going on. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also quite an interesting link to Clifford Still then, because there's an amazing painting by him that I saw in Denver, which has a huge kind of red section with a very small piece of like dark, rich kind of green. I'm going to send it to you. Mm, but that's quite interesting that you respond to him then, because I think there's a there's definitely that at play in his work as well. Huh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Amazing. Hey, guys, well, um, thank you so thank much, you Wolfgang. Thank you so much, Wolfgang. You're amazing. It's been, it's been the most amazing. To speak with you. <laughs> There's a quote that you said called saying, um, I take pictures in order to see the world. And yeah, which, which I never, uh, which, which, oh, in order to see the world, you know, yeah. I think, I think you're misquoting that quote and it says, oh, in, order it? To under, in order to understand the world, the quote says, and I always feel, uh, I don't know if I ever said this or do I really mean it because, <laughs> um, because, it gets repeated all the time because it kind of sounds good. But actually, um, from all that I said before, I think uh, um, um, it, you know, like you can understand why it's so wrong. Because yeah. I was saying, if I'm really interested in something and really carefully look at something, then I'm able to take a picture of it. Uh, whereas this quote sort of insinuates that by just taking lots of pictures, 
uh, looking at them later, you then make sense of them. And yes. of course, it's so, you know, that couldn't be how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of that play between understanding and knowing what you're looking at and at the same time being deeply aware that you know nothing or that I know nothing and try to, you know, like that play. But I'll take pictures to understand the world. No, 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 I didn't. <laughs> but okay. that will... Um, that will hold it sounds you. like you've just created a new quote, <laughs> right. quote anyway. <laughs> what yes. you just, in your uh, response there, you've got a yes. beautiful well, song. Anyway, so for all images Thank we talked so about much. today, please go to the at Talkup page on Instagram where we'll be uploading. And then Wolfgang, you're on Instagram, aren't you? Yes, under my name. And I'm on Spotify and Apple Music. And uh, what we haven't talked about is, is the um, 2020 Solidarity poster um, initiative I've organized in the last uh, five weeks Uh, and please visit that on uh, betweenbridges.net there are 55 artists from around the world that came together to create one poster each which then Between Bridges my foundation um, has printed and uh, will distribute and we are connecting it to now already 35 organizations in need um, um, in eight countries um, and they are selling the posters for 50 quid or dollars a euro and um, and so we made one artist poster uh, do work in eight different places for example Yes. And uh, wow. so these have all come directly from the studio. There's been an incredible communication and response uh, with the different artists. And uh, and it's your opportunity to get a William Eggleston, to get a Jeff Koons, to get a Jillian Waring for £50. Uh, yeah, and for me, it was the David Winorovich one as well, because I think um, that's just such an incredible one from his estate with um, Tom Warren. Was him buried? No, it's um, it's kind of him with flames, you know. Oh like yes, with the house, with the burning house. I the love flames. that image. Yeah, and also the Tomer apps I thought was really great, and Stuart, um, Uo, Uo, that was a very wild one. <laughs> but a friend of mine, Ben, um, actually very excitedly sent me the link to Between Bridges about early May, saying oh. that he couldn't pick which one, and they were some of the ones that he showed me. So yeah. yeah, word is definitely well, getting Well, thank around. you so much, Wolfgang. You're amazing. <laughs> cool. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Thank you so much, Wolfgang. We'll be back Bye. very soon. Bye. Bye, Russell. Bye. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 